You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. How are state and local governments going to deal with food waste? I mean, what can we realistically do to turn it into a commercially viable resource to encourage a circular economy with ideally zero waste, or at the very least less waste than we're currently creating? You might remember today's guest, Bruce Thompson, from episode 73 of this show, The Plastic Pot Problem. He's a horticulturist and waste educator working in local government in Queensland. This episode is sponsored by the Australian horticulture and landscape industry magazine, Hort Journal Australia, whom both Bruce and I write for. G'day, Bruce. Welcome back to the show, mate. Thanks very much, Dan. Thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure to um, to state my mind <laughs> about <laughs> what we need to do in the waste industry. Wonderful. So can you start by telling us about your job in municipal waste and your background in horticulture? Yeah, so I work for Mackay Regional Council, where I am called the Resource Recovery Education Officer. I am the waste educator. So here in Mackay, um, we actually see items that are placed in recycling bins as a resource. And that's exactly what they need to be seen as. They are materials. So they're commodities that are on sold and they offset the cost of landfill which for every council in Australia is a major imposition on their ratepayers. So if we can get our recycling uh, better, then that means potentially we can reduce the cost of our landfill. So my role involves talking to members of the general community from kindergarten kids all the way through to university students about how we can become better at recycling. And all of those material types that I talk about are things that go into recycling bins, such as paper and cardboard, aluminium, steel, and also the things that are going into general waste bins that we want to divert from them. And one of them is food waste, because food waste is such a major component of what's going into landfill. And obviously, food waste um, can be harmful as it's decomposing, depending on what it is. Um, because there's lots of preservatives in food. So, you know, when those preservatives are mixed in with asbestos and mercury and other things that are going into landfill, then that can create an issue for the juice that comes out of it, which is called leachate, because that leachate has to be somehow disposed of, you know, and what we do um, at council is we actually currently carry that away, Um, but there is potential to burn that off. Um, And we'd like to hope that in the future that we'll be using the methane that's coming out of our landfill to be able to burn it off. So um, all councils are currently looking at ways that they can manage their landfill better and reduce it because by 2050, with the the net um, carbon emissions in 2050, landfill will not exist anymore. That's the goal of every council. And wow. we say that now thinking how we're going to achieve that. Um, but uh, Greater Bendigo, um, Greater Bendigo Council is already um, trying to achieve that. And I know Townsville also has a goal of no um, landfill by 2030 as well. And, yeah, there, there really 
interesting targets um, to achieve. Like when I go out to schools, I do waste audits of their own rubbish. I just randomly choose two bags of rubbish and it might weigh as much as eight kilograms. I've, I've done one today. Um, in the one that I did today, I, I had two classes. One was 2.5 kilograms of waste going off to landfill. And 2.5 kilograms doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider that each piece of plastic um, weighs about four grams, then you've actually got quite a lot of plastic, you know, in there. But from the waste audit that I did today with the, with the, the primary school here, I ended up just finding two objects that should have gone to landfill. Everything else could have been recycled in one way or another. So soft plastics, you can recycle with Coles and Woolies at their red cycle bins outside yes. those organisations. Um, food waste, obviously compost it, find some chooks to give it to. Um, you've got paper. Paper obviously goes into recycling bins because it's a resource. Or your compost bin. Yeah, or your compost bin, exactly, you know. But, you know, paper shouldn't be in general ways because what it's doing, it's just actually taking up volume of landfill unnecessary. Um, you know, so it's all the cost of managing landfill that actually make an incredibly uh, big expense for every council in Australia. Um, so food waste, it is low-hanging fruit in terms of getting it out of bins. We've just got to set up the system to actually get it out of there. Wonderful. So why is food waste such a problem? So food waste is a big issue because it creates carbon emissions. So it's methane that equates as carbon dioxide. You will find that depending what local government area you're in in Australia, that food waste makes up about 17% of curbside collection landfill. So it's a substantial amount. It could be 17, it could be as high as 35%, depending on which council area you're in. So, in other words, if you've got a 240-litre general waste bin and all of that weighed exactly 240 litres, which, of course, is 240 kilograms, you've got probably 17 to 35 kilograms of that, at least, you know, that is food waste at an absolute minimum because 10% of 240 litres is going to be 24 kilograms. So, you know, it's upwards of 30 kilograms for most households. And... As food waste, you've got stuff that's been nibbled on and then you've got stuff that's just gone past its use-by date that's been thrown out, something that you left in the back of the fridge or in the crisper, just forgot it was there because, you know, the crisper is opaque and not clear, so you never look <laughs> in it. Um, you know, or it's in the back of the back of the cupboard and you think, oh, I better not eat that because it's now two years out of date. So, you know, that's that's how food waste is emerging as a big economic concern as well as an environmental concern. Um, the economic concern is because people could be doing other things with that money. So most families, it's at least $1,500 um, a year that they're wasting, um, depending on how expensive their shopping bill is. But, yeah, that's a lot of money that people could be putting into their mortgage and, you know, going having a cruise um, when safe to do so, um, you know, otherwise yeah. using that money for the household. Mm -hmm. oh, I could think of a billion things I'd love to do with fifteen hundred bucks. Yeah, I'm sure we all could. So, um, <laughs> yeah, but but food waste, you know, and it's one of those uh, scenarios of boiling boiling the frog, um, you know, on on the stove without the frog ever realizing because it's little by little. You know, it might be this week twenty dollars, um, and next week might be fifty dollars worth of food waste that's in your bin. 
You know, it could be the fact that you bought an entire pizza and decided only to eat half of it, you know, and if your pizza cost you 10 bucks, well, you just lost five bucks. Um, so, you know, food waste, in terms of how we calculate it, it's really all those objects that have passed their use-by date. That is the most common way. Um, but then it's just all those things that are on your plate, you know, that just were never eaten. So, um, you know, here um, at Mackay Regional Council, I often um, do work at events as well um, when they're short on staff. And I find it fascinating going to the events because I actually see firsthand what people aren't eating. So they might have been served a plate that's got a ribeye fillet on it and they haven't touched it. You know, they, they've just mm. let it go cold and so the whole thing gets thrown out. So, you know, or they've only just eaten the steak and left all the vegetables. So all of that's economic waste one way or the other. And I have this conversation with kids of saying, how do you avoid economic waste? And the answer is you have a conversation with your parents or whoever it is saying, I don't like to eat that. Stop giving it to me. So, you know, it's the same with when you're dining somewhere, you know, you just need to say, hey, I'm not going to eat the bread. Don't give it to me because obviously the restaurant can't reuse that bread. Um, and that puts the prices up of everything. You know, waste creates economic um, increases in terms of cost of living expenses um, and inflation. So the cost of managing waste are going up year by year because our population is increasing year by year and our consumption increases with our earnings. So the richer a country gets, the more waste it creates. And that's why the USA is, in terms of the waste it creates, the worst on the planet. You know, mm. And China becoming a developed country also created a lot of waste in terms of its consumption and what it needs to manage. If we never attack the, the issue at its core, which is consumption and how to consume less, then we'll never really solve the issue of why our waste is getting more and more of a problem in terms of local governments having to resolve it. It's not the state governments that actually solve the issue of waste management. It is the local governments. And who pays for that? The ratepayers. So, you know, unfortunately, everyone has to take ownership of the waste that they create. Um, with food waste, you can take ownership by having your own home composting system, your own home bakashi kit, um, your worm farm, and why not have a black soldier fly larvae farm? Because you could easily set it up. All you got to do is capture a black soldier fly larvae, black soldier fly, or buy in mm. larvae, you know, because they will, of course, become flies. Is that nectar? Uh, yep. So the adults, in terms of, yeah, what they would be eating would be similar to a house fly. So it would be sugars. So, yeah, it would be nectar. It would be little crumbs of things because obviously crumbs contain sugars. So, yeah, so they would be going for anything that's, um, that's sugars. Um, the larvae completely different because they're trying to grow protein and fat. So that's why they would really love to eat meat, you know, because there's lots of protein and fat in that. Um, they will eat vegetables as well, um, but it's not their favourite food, you know. Their favourite mm. food is fatty meats. Gotcha. So you could throw a few veggies in there, but really they're there for breaking down your meats. Yeah, they're there for proteins, ideally. So, and because they do occur in nature, the, the way that they operate in nature is they're going for animals that are dying, you know, or dead, obviously, um, because that's a protein that they are going for. Um, but, yeah, they, they don't, like as a species, operate as worms do. It's simply their life cycle is that of a, you know, a hemiptera, 
So it's going to be eating something that uh, its larvae are going to depend on. So that's why you're going to see the life cycle as completely different um, because it's the larvae that are doing all the eating rather than the fly itself. So the larvae aren't considered to be a pest um, so and they're not vectors of any disease. That's the other really important thing as well. Um, and they are essential to ecosystems because they break down um, anything that's organic. But in terms of what they uh, seem to be for us in the future is a way of managing meat. And I think that's where they've been used in Indonesia. Right. Well, certainly we there's not a whole lot you can do with meat other than hot composting, but, I mean, you can't chuck it in your backyard, small, cold composting sort of tub or anything like that. Yeah, no. Pests, diseases, stink. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and as I said, currently the only other option to black soldier fly naturally is going to be bakashi kits, but a lot of people would argue that that's not natural. So if something happened with your bakashi kit, um, then you, know, you, you lose the enzyme, you've got to be able to regrow that. So, and look, you can go to the major department stores and you get the enzyme spray, um, and that actually encourages that whole process. But Pikachu kits um, were developed in Japan, so they're intended for people living in smaller spaces and in apartments. Um, here in the in the tropics, in the humidity, the smell coming from the Pikachu kit is not um, a nice one. So. <laughs> Can you just describe the Bakashi kit for us? Like, what is a Bakashi kit? Yeah, so a Bakashi kit, look, it's really just a bucket. Um, and it's got a little tap down the bottom. And from that, you drain fluid that you then substantially dilute down and use as a fertilizer. With a Bakashi bucket, you can put all food waste in there. It will happily take fish frames. It will happily take meat, probably best if the meat be chopped down a bit. Um, but there is an enzyme in that and you can buy the enzyme with the kit. You spray that enzyme in and it just starts to breed within the confines of the of the bucket. So it's needing moisture because obviously food contains a lot of moisture. Um, it's the wetness in that that the enzyme's thriving on. And the enzyme just gradually breaks it down. So it is using a natural process, probably similar to what goes on in our stomachs. You know, that enzymes are breaking down food as well. So it's using that type of, I would say, an internal organ approach to breaking it down, um, using a plastic bucket as the frame for it. So um, Bakashi kits, you know, from a cost perspective, are not expensive um, and everyone should be able to manage one. Um, The big issue with it is how much waste do you want to get rid of because you can't have a commercial facility that's a Bakashi facility um, because it's going to be massive and all you're getting out of it is a juice and there's going to be a product um, that comes out of that. Uh, eventually, that's you know more of a, a solid waste um, product. Mm. Where does that go? You know that that goes into your garden if you've got a garden, or does it actually go into a bin and go to landfill anyway? <laughs> in the end, you know. So really, we have to be more intelligent about the ways that we're looking at food waste. Obviously, we should be stopping waste at its source um, as as a, a goal. So really, there needs to be the educational message of don't buy what you're not going to eat, you know, and also constantly check the labels on things with expiry dates 
so that food isn't being thrown out because it's gone past its expiry date. So in Australia, um, given that landfill makes up about 4% of our carbon emissions, it is a much um, lower piece of fruit to pick um, from a government perspective to deal with landfill carbon emissions, which is methane equated as carbon emissions, than it is to um, to deal with the more complex political issues of thermal coal, because obviously thermal coal creates jobs. So um, landfill reduction is there on the agenda because it's much easier to achieve. And food waste being a major component of landfill is even lower hanging fruit um, for the government because it's easy to get that out of landfill, so out of general waste bins. And as to how it's going to be achieved, that is probably where we're lacking direction from a state government and a Commonwealth government perspective, because they're wanting local councils to um, achieve the food waste management, but aren't necessarily putting those funds in to actually enable it to happen. But it is a major education piece. And for me, as a, as a waste educator, who's also a horticulturalist, um, food waste is a very interesting space for me to be operating in because, as I said, you've got the byproducts of fertiliser that can be on sold to industry and there would be lots and lots of horticulture industries that would want um, compost from food waste in very large quantities. There is a market, you know, that's readily available. Obviously, things like biochar is itself, you know, coming from a waste product. It's coming from feces. You know, we'll actually say it for what it is. Um, so <laughs> biochar is biosolids, you know, that has been substantially dried and then uh, chemically treated and, you know, determined to be safe to put back into the ground. And I don't think that this is anything new under the sun. I think that probably for thousands and thousands of years, mankind has been human, using human feces um, as fertiliser. So biochar is certainly already there, just been remarketed. So most people wouldn't know what biochar is, but certainly it's biosolids. And there's sugarcane farmers here in Mackay that are very keen to get more and more biochar because obviously what we eat is very high in protein and there's lots of macro and micronutrients in biochar that are replenishing the soil. So when we look at food waste by comparison, as I said, biochar really is food waste management um, because mm. we are the vessel, we are the bakashi kit, our stomachs are the bakashi <laughs> kit that are creating that byproduct. So we are the human machine creating yeah. biochar. And it makes absolutely no sense to get rid of that resource that, you know, we've created. Like, So we want a circular economy for this food. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Yeah, so in circular economy, that is the catchphrase of the recycling industry now. Recycling is almost old hat because recycling is just waste by another name if you're not buying it back. And creating local circularity, what that actually means is keeping a material at its highest value for the longest period of time. So mm -hmm. perfect example of that is metal. Most metal is already in some way recycled. About 50% of most metal is already a recycled metal. So which makes me think that, you know, um, metal as a material isn't as bad for the planet as what everyone's going to say because, yes, part of that is mined but part of it is recycled and so to, to a certain extent you could argue that it's offsetting the mining 
Um, thermal coal is a completely different matter because obviously that is creating carbon emissions and all the energy that's used in extracting it. So, um, but, you know, containers for change schemes such as what, the one we've got here in Queensland and they're now in every state of Australia are really good at encouraging people to look at materials differently. And the same type of scheme needs to exist for food waste because potentially the state governments, if they were collecting food waste as a per kilogram, and then all of that was going back to um, to some type of conversion for um, for products such as biochar or its equivalent, so like a dehydrated composted product that could be on sold to farmers, then I think that would be a perfect way to get food waste out of general waste bins. Um, the Containers for Change scheme here in Queensland is funded by the big brewers. So, you know, Forex and the like, so Castlemaine or its equivalent. Um, so if there was an equivalent there that went on for food waste, perhaps funded by Coles and Woolies uh, as examples, given that they create the food waste, um, then I think that would encourage people to just collect their food waste, get paid by the kilogram for it, and then there's organisations that then process it and you know send it onwards um, for farmers. So why not do the same thing with food waste that they're doing for you know aluminium cans and PET uh, plastic bottles, etc. Absolutely. I mean, and obviously the other thing that's going on there is because the um, the actual larvae are very high in protein, they are currently being fed in Indonesia um, to poultry, fish, pigs. Um, dogs would eat them as well, you know. So it is potentially pet food. Um, humans could eat them. There is potential for them to be eaten by humans. And they are available to buy. So actually in Indonesia, you can buy them as larvae um, and you could do the breeding that way. So potentially you could be doing the same thing as business in Australia if someone wants to set that up by just actually sending them out to people. And if you can actually create some type of um, housing for them, which is just going to be an entrapment enclosure like a butterfly enclosure, then people could do this at home, you know, and that would mean that we take ownership of our waste at home um, by using black soldier flies rather than using composting worms. Because evidently with composting worms, if you're not feeding them their own body weight each day, then you run the risk of actually killing off the entire colony of worms. So with a black soldier fly larvae, so long as you're providing them meat that they can breed on, they would control their breeding and they would regulate it. So, um, you know, they do offer, I think, a lot more um, potential than what's currently existing in terms of compost worms or hot composting. Hot composting is very labour intensive um, because you have to keep constantly turning it to put the air in. With these, you can just pretty much put in the bit of meat, go away, and they'll devour it. And then you end up with more of these larvae that you can then sell you know to someone who wants them as say aquaculture or you could potentially give them to other people that want to set up their own um their own facility is the only way to describe it i guess right so with a worm farm you've kind of got these different layers where the castings fall down so it's not like you've yep. got waste mixed in with it is that the same case with the soldier flies yep so with soldier flies they're consuming everything um, so it, you're not getting a, a vermicast um, as you do with worm castings. It's just devouring everything because they're eating it. They're getting fatter. 
uh, and subsequently you're getting more of them. So you need to keep mm. the flies in there constantly having um, the eggs to obviously consume everything through their larvae. Um, so long as those flies are active, then you're going to be able to potentially deal with the food waste more efficiently than you would with worms. Because as everyone knows, with a worm farm, if you were to put something in there um, that's more solid, um, then it can take longer for the worms to digest that than it would if it was broken down. Whereas with you know having thousands of larvae um, in there eating your food waste, that's going to happen much faster. Mm-hmm. So in Australia, um, the total that we estimate of food waste is about 7.6 million tonnes every year. So, and because that's methane that's coming out of that, it's 24 times the global warning potential of carbon dioxide. So methane is a really tricky thing to control um, and food waste is a big creator of that. So one way or the other, we have to figure out a way of managing food waste effectively because of those greenhouse gas emissions that we're getting and storing food and dumping it in landfill, it's about... 940 billion a year for the entire planet to actually currently manage it so there's got to be a more efficient way of doing that Um, it could be you know using those in vessel dehydrators but obviously that's using a lot of electricity um, and it's not a natural system so black soldier flies do have that potential to naturally just consume that food and provide circularity through the larvae as feedstock, you know, to fish, pigs, whatever it's going to be, humans, you know, potentially. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's you've got the soldier fly larvae and they've also got a frass, right? Would that be the equivalent of the castings? Um, yep, so there is, yep, there, there is a frass that's created. The frass, um, I don't consider the frass to be the same issue as what um, compost is. Frass can potentially be used for um, also compost facilities, but the frass, um, yeah, in terms of it being a decomposed thing, it's not a pollution. It's really something that's put aside. Um, how mm. you would use that is, I think, as a soil conditioner. Um, right. And you could argue that composting um, and worm farming is also a soil conditioner because it doesn't have the same macronutrients, the NPK ratio, as what you know the fertilizer um, standards deem to be what is what's a fertilizer in terms of its definition. So yes, you could use it as a soil conditioner because um, it's obviously going to have a lot of you know byproduct proteins in it. Not to mention the biodiversity in the guts of those things. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yeah, but, but yeah, so a bit like. The, the frass itself isn't um, – it's not in the same quantity yeah. as what worm castings is. Okay. So you, you tend to, in the industry, they're, they're really talking about what do you do with the larvae more so than what do you do with the frass, you know, because it's the larvae yeah. that has the potential as a food source. I gotcha. um, And that's really what you're looking at. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, but black soldier fly larvae, as I said, they're very common um, – around worm farms at the moment um, and you'll actually see them come in they, they tend to make it a bit wetter um, particularly in more humid areas you'll see them um, but they tend to make it a bit wetter just because it's 
they're consuming it in a different way and people mm. will just look at them and say, oh, no, I've got maggots in there. Um, and then they'll try and exclude the flies. Well, sometimes letting the flies in is not a bad idea because the black soldier flies are actually going to get rid of any meat that's actually in your worm farm. Mm. So, and then eventually they won't have anything to thrive on, um, the larvae, so they'll crawl out of there. Just as worms escape from worm farms, so do the larvae. Um, and then they'll go to wherever they're going to go and, and continue their life cycle and turn into the fly. So, um, yeah, so ideally we want to actually encourage more of the black soldier flies because they're not a, they're not a, a, a vector for pests and disease, so they're not harming anything. Um, and most people wouldn't even look at a black soldier fly and think it's a house fly um, because it's got much longer wings as well. Um, they'd probably think, what's that insect? And the way they beat their wings is real weird too. Yeah, exactly. It's very different. They're like obsessive compulsive with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They kind of like just keep going. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So they're, they're very different in terms of their their species um, to just a normal house fly. They, in terms of where they occur in the world, um, they are very, very broad. You know, they are predominantly within that pan-tropical region. But in saying that, they're up in Russia. Um, they're in Canary Islands, um, they're in Europe. So they are capable of living in quite cold areas. So for Australia, they could live everywhere, you know. So there is potential even in Tasmania to have a facility that's a black soldier fly facility if it's a local government. Um, it's just a matter of how do we deal with um, all of those issues of keeping them in that enclosure, and I think that's where we've got to move forward to to figuring out how can we use natural systems as opposed to systems that are highly dependent on electricity, such as in-vessel dehydrators, to deal with our food waste um, as municipalities. Because as we know, most people won't deal with food waste at home. In Queensland, there's been four uh, local governments who've been trialling food waste collection that was sponsored by the state government. Those councils were Lockyer Valley Regional Council, Townsville um, City Council, Rockhampton Regional Council, and then Ipswich. And they all came up with different results in terms of the contamination rate that was there. So they didn't get many things such as nappies, um, but they did actually get lots of things in there that they didn't want because it was an opt-in system. When you're dealing with a general community and you're making them all separate out their food waste, the reality is, is the contamination level is going to be quite high. <laughs> and that's why a lot of councils go to in-vessel dehydrators because if there is a nappy in with that, and inevitably there will be, um, then they're trying to burn that so it's not going to be environmentally harmful. Uh, so, yeah, I just say to everyone, if you're dealing with food waste, take ownership of it at home because if you're genuinely caring about the planet in terms of the carbon emissions or if you want to create fertiliser or another resource you know, in terms of your circularity at home, then using a home system is always going to give you that, whereas a commercial system won't. In horticulture in general, like as an example, green waste, when it gets chipped up, there's a lot of horticulturalists that wouldn't use the, the mulch that comes from that because they would be thinking that not everything that's being chipped up is going to be beneficial to the garden. You know, and that might be correct. You know, there might be things in there such as old, you know, copper's logs or something, you know, that's got yeah. arsenic in it. So um, there are people that actually don't 
avail themselves of the free uh, bark when it, or free mulch when it's available from councils. If it's been hot composted, it should all be okay. And that's in terms of mulch as well as food. Um, but, you know, again, it, there are lots of people that that education process is a very long process. Um, and I would say dealing with black soldier fly larvae in terms of introducing them is going to be a very difficult educational piece for people because they will just associate the black soldier flies with house flies. And that's a stumbling block um, that people will need to, to get over. I, I mean, I wrote the piece on it, but I mean, I really looked at it from the perspective of waste management in terms of how we can actually get a byproduct that is really high value because the feedstock as the larvae is very high value because it's actually meaning that the proteins that we all need or all need to eat as a human species are readily available, you know, in the form of this larvae. You know, it's just a matter of how do you get everyone on the planet to start eating insects to get rid of the methane that's coming out of cows, you know. Yeah, we can't even get us to eat kangaroos, let alone insects. No, and that's right. And and I, I am very aware that kangaroo is actually really good for you. It's very high in protein, really low in fat. And frankly, it's the, the meat of choice that Australians have had for, you know, however many tens of thousands of years we've been in Australia, you know, as a people. So why aren't we eating kangaroo and wallaby? Because that is what was always eaten here, you know. That, it, that is exactly what we should be eating. And insects have always been eaten here as well, obviously witchetty grubs, you know. So we should, as um, Australians, all be eating kangaroo, wallaby and insect grubs because that's what we've always eaten. The European animals that we've got here aren't suited to Australia and shouldn't be here. And the environmental degradation from those animals is quite well known. But in terms of the methane creation, well, you're not getting any methane from black soldier flies. You're not getting um, those issues with them trampling the earth. In fact, they're actually taking care of the earth. They're great custodians of our planet um, because they are decomposers, just as you've got fungi that are decomposers. They play a really important role in that process. That's why they are out there in nature. Actually, it's funny you bring that up. In summer, we get the black soldier fly larvae in Melbourne, but in winter, they're not about. So we'll we get the fungus instead that'll break down everything. So I've noticed through winter in my in my courtyard garden, yeah, if I throw down some, uh, I'm a big fan of the um, dynamic lifter and I'm also a big fan of blood and bone. And both of those yep. things sort of just get a layer of um, fuzz over them from the, <laughs> from the fungus. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm just having a look, and yes, you can buy in Australia. You can currently buy black soldier fly larvae. Hmm. Who's that from? Yeah, um, one organisation just having a look called Biosupplies. Um, so you could actually approach them for an ad. Um, Biosupplies, black soldier fly larvae, 100 pack, $4.95. Genius. So, yep. So you could approach them to get advertising out. I'm trying to see who else is doing it. Um Goterra, Goterra, Goterra. Kellyville Pets. Oh, there you go. Oh, okay. So yeah, in right Sydney, there. Kellyville, they're, they're actually selling them. $10.99 for 25 grams. Live black soldier fly larvae. You know who I would actually see as loving this as bait would be fishermen and women. Because that would be a fantastic bait, you know, Wouldn't as it? a live bait. And I reckon it'd be a lot more successful than your frozen prawns. Oh. So... You know, then yeah, Gotra. Um, I don't know if you're going to get advertising out of them, but they're obviously they're selling them as well. Hmm. There's a 
dehydrated. What are they? One kilograms, twelve dollars a kilogram. Um, forty-five dollars for five kilograms. Yeah, they've actually got they've got quite a bit. You can actually see, you know, and say so if you if I look in the frass, I don't know if anyone's actually selling it. Let me just have a look. Goterra uh, sells. Oh, actually, no, I they are. They yeah, they yeah. are. Leftover. Yeah. yeah, so the leftover. Yeah, Enviro Fight. Um, so there's another one called Enviro. I don't think that might be American. Black soldier fly larvae, including larvae waste, exoskeleton sheds, and remaining feed ingredients. Yeah, I right. Think Goterra sell it as a food product for humans as well. Do they? Really? I think so. Okay. I have to double check. Yeah, that. actually, having actually, I'm just having a look. Um. Let's have a look. Blog. So, well, fertilizer definitely. Um, are they saying to you can eat it? So, plant growth. Ooh. Nutrient profile. Okay. The frass. Okay. So, it's saying it's NPK ratio ratio of five three two. So five percent nitrogen, three percent phosphorus, two percent calcium. So calcium, hmm, yeah, interesting. Wonder NPC. why they're not actually putting <laughs> potassium. It's normally NPP. Oh, uh, so, yeah, NPP. You know, the K, K the K yeah. is potassium. <laughs> potassium. But why are they saying two percent calcium? I think they've misstood that calcium and, and potassium are different things. Anyway, I wouldn't rely on that one. So, <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, so I can see how. If you've got enough of it, that it would be a really good soil conditioner. Mm. Um, NPK five three two. What did they say? Cow manure what six four five? Pig manure eight seven five. Really so pig manure is really high in phosphorus. You wouldn't put that on Australian natives. No. Okay. Uh, actually, no. They're saying zero point six zero point four zero point five. And so this is for the frass, not for the insects themselves, not for the dehydrated. Yeah, this is the frass that they're yeah, analysing. Right. But I'm just having a look how many places are selling it. There's quite a lot of places that are selling the frass. But there's actually not been anything on Gardening Australia or anything like that about it, has there? I've never seen yeah. people selling the frass, but it's there. Ahead of the curve, baby. That's Plants Grow Here. That's why you come to Plants Grow Here. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> no. Yeah, interesting. It's a Certainly it's an overlooked byproduct. So it's actually much better than um, worms because you're getting two things. You're getting the insects that you can feed your chooks mm. or your pigs or whatever you've got, and then you've got the frass, which you can feed your plants. Mm -hmm. So it actually seems to be a really good problem solver. So if if councils all actually did set up facilities where they could farm black soldier flies um, as larvae, then they would end up being able to produce all of those local industries that are connected to them by being able to provide the insects for food and the exoskeletons um, as the frass for plants, so anyone in agriculture. Mm. So I can see lots of advantages in it. Um, it's just really a matter of um, the education, you know, that, that these things aren't at all comparable to houseflies mm. and have always been here um, in nature, just turning things back into byproducts that we'd probably take advantage. Um, but they are just nature's decomposer, just as mushrooms are. So we need to really harness their abilities to to do that on a more commercial level than what we're currently doing. But um, 
I can see overseas there's been a lot of research into how to use black soldier fly larvae um, and how to create circularity because if you're in an organisation where there is a lot of food waste being created, particularly animal proteins, um, then you could easily set up that circularity by feeding that to your livestock uh, as some type of additive. You know, and if dogs can eat it, then why not cows? You know, so I'm sure there'd be lots of animals that you could do. I mean, we're feeding cows seaweed to try and reduce the methane. So what would happen if we experimented by feeding them black soldier fly larvae? Now, if someone's listening right now saying, oh, but cows eat grass and plants. They don't eat insects. Actually, that's not true. Cows actually do eat insects. That's just part of the game when you're trying to eat grass. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's exactly right. But but there'd be lots of ways that we could actually uh, get this to to another level, you know, in terms of how you can use black soldier fly larvae, potentially, you know, in the agricultural and general horticulture industry in a way that they're not currently being used. But um, yeah, so all those animals out there that are you know, eating other types of proteins, why not uh, start feeding them insect proteins and see what results you get? Because surely, like with dogs, if you're feeding them um, black soldier fly larvae, that they wouldn't be putting on as much weight. Um, and I would imagine if you could actually be growing them um, in your food waste facility at home, you'd be saving a lot of money on dog food um, because you've already got a ready diet for them at home. Yeah. So it would make sense to actually start doing these things from an economic perspective to one, save money and to provide circularity in your own household. So, um, you know, and if you've got chooks that you're going to get eggs from again, you know, why buy chook grain if you've got black soldier fly larvae there? And if you've got the flies ever present, then you're always going to have the larvae. So um, I think that is something that we should be looking at more seriously. Um, And it does make me wonder why someone hasn't. Um, being innovative and gone and set up a black soldier fly facility that people can just have at home. So maybe someone listening to this will do that because I, I can see that there's a market for it. There is a market for it. And do you know what else there's a market for? Yeah. Let's just say a landscape business owner, you've got a social media following. I reckon if you can have an interesting, unique angle, people are more likely to share your posts and they're more likely to remember who you are. So if you're the landscaper who's constantly posting about um, black soldier larvae frass and you're talking about insect frass and stuff like that, you can deliver this product to your clients and have a unique angle and a unique story that people want to hear and that people are interested in. Because I think black soldier fly larvae, that's just such an interesting thing and you can just keep talking about it post after post after post. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And really, I mean, could you imagine if you had um, you know, a show with Nigella Lawson in it, you know, one of the cooks where they're actually cooking up black soldier fly larvae, right. you know, <laughs> roasting yeah. them. I mean, can you imagine the controversy of that? But to be honest, yes. given, given what they're eating, I can't see any difference in eating a witchetty grub <laughs> as opposed to eating a black soldier fly larvae. Um, you know, uh, maybe those people that do eat it and aren't alive to tell me would say differently. Um, but I think that it's not going to be harmful, you know, because if it's just eating proteins and it's in a clean facility that is a hygienic facility, then it shouldn't be an issue. Hey, man, I ate uh, dancing shrimp in Thailand, which was living shrimp. 
<laughs> they call them yeah, dancing because wow. they kind oh, of okay. flick in your mouth. So if if you if I yeah. can eat that, I can eat dead soldier fly larvae or dehydrated soldier fly larvae. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm sure if they're wriggling larvae, because obviously when you eat witchy grubs, <laughs> they're still moving. You know, um, I think that there is definitely that potential. But in terms of reducing our um, our costs from a land perspective, our economic and environmental costs, which is obviously there with anything that's got cloven hoofs. So with, you know, with cattle, with sheep, um, by replacing them with insects, and that's only going to help our planet. Um, and I do think that it's inevitable that within the next 20 to 50 years that most people will be eating insects um, in their diet because I think the education process of, yes, you can eat insects and still be healthy, um, will be better understood. Mm. But, you know, perhaps the the marketing with all Aussies should be eating kangaroo and uh, wallaby and emu because their their fat content is less hasn't been well marketed because really that is what we should all be eating. Um, and as, said, as I've said before, traditionally we have been a, a planet um, that has been wasteful um, but the First Nations people realised that there was nothing wrong with eating insects um, and there was certainly nothing wrong with eating wallabies and kangaroos. So why have we somehow disconnected from that through you know, European settlement? Uh, we should be going back to Aboriginal foods in general because we're doing that now with bush foods, the bush food movement that I'm also a part of. Um, we should be doing that with proteins. So it just makes sense that, you know, this black soldier fly larvae, if it's always been in Australia, then I dare say it's been eaten, um, just as a witchy grub has been eaten. So it is actually a traditional food source. Um, I would I would be interested to find out if there's um, First Nations who actually have stories about black soldier fly larvae being eaten. Um, mm. But I would imagine that there would have been someone in Australia tens and tens of thousands of years ago who thought, hmm, I might try nibbling on that. And I'm sure they survived. <laughs> so, um, yep. So I can see many advantages for black soldier fly um, because of the many byproducts that you get from them. Um, the frass sounds like it's it's got a reasonable NPK ratio that um, would make it a viable thing to harvest and to sell in large quantities um, at Bunnings and the other big stores. So you could potentially sell the frass if you're doing it commercially, uh, as well as, um, you know, the insect larvae itself. So to me, it makes a lot more sense than compost worms. Compost worms are very picky eaters, you know. They're not going to eat your alliums. They're not going to eat your citrus. So, you know, they, they're not going to touch dairy. They're not going to touch meat. And in fact, it's going to be more harm from those gases that are being produced from alliums and citrus, really, um, if there's large quantities of them in your um, in your worm farm. Whereas if you've got black soldier fly larvae, then pretty much you can just put your food in there and forget about it because um, it sounds like they will have a go at nibbling on everything and if there's something there that they like to eat. So, um, yeah, so why aren't we doing it commercially? Um, Indonesia's certainly figured out a way to do it, so why can't we? Um, and as I said, currently the only other option to black soldier fly naturally is going to be bakashi kits, but a lot of people would argue that that's not natural. So if something happened with your bakashi kit, um, then you, know, you, you lose the enzyme, you've got to be able to regrow that. So, and look, you can go to the major department stores and you get the enzyme spray, um, and that actually encourages that whole process. 
but Pikachu kits um, were developed in Japan, so they're intended for people living in smaller spaces and in apartments. Um, here in the in the tropics, in the humidity, the smell coming from the Bakashi kit is not um, a nice one. <laughs> so, can you just describe the Bakashi kit for us? Like, what is a Bakashi kit? Yeah, so a Bakashi kit. Look, it's really just a bucket, um, and it's got a little tap down the bottom, and from that you drain fluid that you then substantially dilute down and use as a fertilizer. With a Bakashi bucket, you can put all food waste in there. It will happily take fish frames. It will happily take meat, probably best if the meat be chopped down a bit. Um, But there is an enzyme in that, and you can buy the enzyme with the kit. You spray that enzyme in, and it just starts to breed within the confines of of the bucket. So it's needing moisture because, obviously, food contains a lot of moisture. Um... It's the wetness in that that the enzyme's thriving on. And the enzyme just gradually breaks it down. So it is using a natural process, probably similar to what goes on in our stomachs, you know, that enzymes are breaking down food as well. So it's using that type of, I would say, an internal organ approach to breaking it down, um, using a plastic bucket as the frame for it. So um, Bakashi kits, you know, from a cost perspective, are not expensive, um, and everyone should be able to manage one. Um, the big issue with it is how much waste do you want to get rid of because you can't have a commercial facility that's a Bakashi facility um, because it's going to be massive and all you're getting out of it is a juice and there's going to be a product um, that comes out of that. Uh, eventually, that's you know more of a, a solid waste um, product. Mm. Where does that go? You know that that goes into your garden if you've got a garden, or does it actually go into a bin and go to landfill anyway? <laughs> in the end, you know. So really, we have to be more intelligent about the ways that we're looking at food waste. Obviously, we should be stopping waste at its source um, as as a, a goal. So really, there needs to be the educational message of don't buy what you're not going to eat, you know, and also constantly check the labels on things with expiry dates so that food isn't being thrown out because it's gone past its expiry date. So in Australia, um, given that landfill makes up about 4% of our carbon emissions, it is a much um, lower piece of fruit to pick Um, from a government perspective to deal with landfill carbon emissions, which is methane equated as carbon emissions, than it is to to deal with the more complex political issues of thermal coal, because obviously thermal coal creates jobs. So um, landfill reduction is there on the agenda because it's much easier to achieve. And food waste being a major component of landfill is even lower hanging fruit um, for the government because it's easy to get that out of landfill, so out of general waste bins. And as to how it's going to be achieved, that is probably where we're lacking direction from a state government and a Commonwealth government perspective, because they're wanting local councils to um, achieve the food waste management, but aren't necessarily putting those funds in to actually enable it to happen. But it is a major education piece. And for me, as a, as a waste educator who's also a horticulturalist, um, food waste is a very interesting space for me to be operating in 
because, as I said, you've got the byproducts of fertilizer that can be on sold to industry, and there would be lots and lots of horticulture industries that would want um, compost from food waste in very large quantities. There is a market, you know, that's readily available. Obviously, things like biochar is itself, you know, coming from a waste product. It's coming from feces. You know, we'll actually say it for what it is. Um, so <laughs> biochar is biosolids, you know, that has been substantially dried and then uh, chemically treated and, you know, determined to be safe to put back into the ground. And I don't think that this is anything new under the sun. I think that probably for thousands and thousands of years, mankind has been human, using human feces um, as fertilizer. So biochar is certainly already there, just being remarketed. So most people wouldn't know what biochar is, but certainly it's biosolids. And there's sugarcane farmers here in Mackay that are very keen to get more and more biochar because obviously what we eat is very high in protein and there's lots of macro and micronutrients in biochar that are replenishing the soil. So when we look at food waste by comparison, as I said, biochar really is food waste management um, because mm. we are the vessel, we are the bakashi kit, our stomachs are the bakashi <laughs> kit that are creating that byproduct. So we are the human machine creating yeah. biochar. And it makes absolutely no sense to get rid of that resource that, you know, we've created. Like, So we want a circular economy for this food. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Yeah, so in circular economy, that is the catchphrase of the recycling industry now. Recycling is almost old hat because recycling is just waste by another name if you're not buying it back. And creating local circularity, what that actually means is keeping a material at its highest value for the longest period of time. So mm -hmm. perfect example of that is metal. Most metal is already in some way recycled. About 50% of most metal is already a recycled metal. So which makes me think that, you know, um, metal as a material isn't as bad for the planet as what everyone's going to say because, yes, part of that is mined but part of it is recycled and so to, to a certain extent you could argue that it's offsetting the mining um, thermal coal is a completely different matter because obviously that is creating carbon emissions and all the energy that's used in extracting it so um, but you know containers for change schemes such as what the one we've got here in Queensland and they're now in every state of Australia are really good at encouraging people to look at materials differently and the same type of scheme needs to exist for food waste because potentially the state governments, if they were collecting food waste as a per kilogram, and then all of that was going back to um, to some type of conversion for, um, for products such as biochar or its equivalent, so like a dehydrated composted product that could be on sold to farmers, then I think that would be a perfect way to get food waste out of general waste bins. Um, the Containers for Change scheme here in Queensland is funded by the big brewers. So, you know, Forex and the like, so Castlemaine, its equivalent. Um, so if there was an equivalent there that went on for food waste, perhaps funded by Coles and Woolies uh, as examples, given that they create the food waste, um, then I think that would encourage people to just collect their food waste, get paid by the kilogram for it, and then there's organisations that then process it and, you know, send it onwards um, for farmers. So why not do the same thing with food waste that they're doing for, you know, 
aluminium cans and PET uh, plastic bottles, etc. Absolutely. Before we move on, I was going to finish the episode up, but you brought up the Indonesia thing again, and I, I remembered I wanted to ask you: Can you like tell us what is Indonesia doing right when it comes to food waste? Well, look again. It to me, Indonesia has a lot of. Um, elements in society that don't have the same money that we do in Australia. So there would be less food waste just because economically there there isn't the ability to waste food like there is in Australia. So I would say that um, in terms of how they're managing it, they're doing it in smaller facilities and they're keeping it more community-based. So it is smaller level, but then you've got a very large population. So Indonesia, like most countries in the world, would be highly reliant on landfill um, because landfill is a really easy solution. But um, because of the economic issues, um, black soldier fly larvae, there is a need for it because they've got to feed a large population and something like black soldier fly larvae has a capacity to be used as feedstock because, again, they're saving money by not having to buy in a special food type um, for the fish because they can just breed up these flies um, and then use their larvae to feed the fish. So... To me, it's a very simple solution um, because it's reducing their costs on buying in feedstock. So, you know, if I was a farmer here that had pigs, well, why wouldn't I approach my local council and say, hey, I'll take all of your um, your food waste? And, yep, some of that I could probably feed to my pigs, but uh, then I could also look at breeding up these black soldier flies because that larvae is really high in protein and maybe then I could actually get more money for my pork because it doesn't have the same fat content, so and which means more muscle. So it's kind of like what you're doing um, if you've got, um, I guess, cattle, you know, that are that are being feedlotted. It's, a, it's an equivalency to that. So um, and obviously, yes, you know, your cattle aren't probably going to nibble on them. Why not? <laughs> Why not have a go? Mm, I know mm. that they're herbivores, um, but you know, if we can do anything that's going to reduce the amount of um, of food waste, then I think that's a great thing. Wonderful. Bruce, I always like to ask our guests at the end of every episode, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? No, I think I just want people to start thinking about what they're throwing in the bin, you know, because it's really mm-hmm. important to to look at everything that goes in a bin and think, can we use that differently and can we value that as a resource? And I think food needs to be viewed as a resource. So one thing you could simply do at home if you're not going to have black soldier flies or compost worms is just bury it in your garden. You could just get a PVC pipe and just dig that 300 mil, mil into the ground and then just chuck your food waste into that and just put a cap on it so no rats and no cockroaches can get in. And within a couple of months, that would have converted back into soil. And then you just bury it and move on again. So... If you actually consider the benefits of doing that, then you're actually fertilising um, the plants. So you're going to have a better looking garden and you stop stuff from going into landfill. So, you know, everything that we consume is going to have a result in terms of its environmental impact. So if we can reduce our, our environmental impacts by just thinking smarter, about those things that we're wasting and actually avoid waste in the first place, then I think that we can move to a better place in terms of our society going forward as a zero waste society. Zero waste needs to be up there with zero emissions because waste 
is a really big economic impact, you know, on everybody that's paying rates. And one way or the other, you're suffering. If you're not a rate payer, you're paying it by increased rent. So if we can actually somehow manage our waste better, then we can help to reduce our economic impacts that are coming from waste. So, yeah, just think about everything before you chuck it. Literally that saying, check it before you chuck it. You know, just consider what you're buying on the shelves. Is this going to create waste or not? And manage it through your consumer choices. Hmm. And remember that Gary Moran, I think it was 12 years or something or seven years or some number of years that he didn't take out his bin just because he understood where every bit of waste went. So he knew where to take the aluminium. He knew where to take the soft plastics. Yep. You know? That's exactly right. I, I did a I did a waste audit today at a school where I had one kilogram and I ended up with one object only needing to go to landfill, whereas before I had one kilogram, which doesn't sound like a lot, but, but oh, the one object was a plastic straw and even that plastic <laughs> straw could have been reused hundreds and hundreds of times, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was saying to the kids, you know, at the school where I was doing the audit is that all that you needed to not have this go to landfill was to think about a way to use it, you know. And that's the same with everything that we put in the bin. You know, hoarders are often criticised, you know, as being uh, environmentally unhealthy. However, they're usually brilliant thinkers because they're actually saving all this stuff thinking that there's got to be another way to repurpose it. And I think if they're not hoarding stuff that's just literally litter, then that has to be in some way commended because they're actually trying to channel something that we can't, which is they're looking at objects differently because they can see a purpose in it. So if you're a really good recycler, maybe in times to come, people will be able to prove that there is something in your DNA that makes you also similar to a hoarder because you can actually figure out how to use things differently and you can see the value in things. And that's not a bad thing, you know. So that's a really good thing in terms of our planet, being able to see the value in every bit of material. Brilliant, Bruce. What a beautiful note to end it on. Thank you so much for a great episode, mate. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yes, we need to be tackling the big issues on a local, state, national, and even a global scale. But if you're still putting food waste into your general waste bin... You can divert that into your green bin if your local council collects green waste. I've made that switch after I chatted with Gary Moran about zero and minimal waste life hacks in episode 52. It's a seriously easy switch to make. My unit complex has green bins next to the recycling bins. If you don't have a green bin, contact your local council to get one, or encourage them to offer green waste collection for the community if they aren't already with the program. There's a link in the show notes to subscribe to the online or printed version of Hort Journal Australia if you'd like to read Bruce's regular waste column and my careers column.